0: Catherine Hannaway was the first Republican to jump into the 2016 gubernatorial race. But a lot has changed for Hannaway since 2014, and she has a number of challenges to overcome to get the Republican nomination. The former House Speaker and U.S. Attorney joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. 9, 8, 7, eight, six, 6, 5,
1: uh, I think that is fair As to say.
0: As hands to kiss and babies to shake. But, uh, <laughs> no,
1: I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question.
0: Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is...
1: Colleague Joe Manis.
0: And joining us for the second time, hopefully you will be even better than the first we have in studio...
1: Catherine Hannaway, Jason and Joe, thanks for having me back.
0: I'm running for governor here in Missouri.
2: And she's the former House Speaker, the first and only woman who's held that post.
0: And a former U.S. Attorney. I I think we went back and forth about this, what we refer to you as in our stories, whether it's former House Speaker or former U.S. Attorney, because they're both pretty prestigious posts. I think I'm just going to stick with GOP gubernatorial aspirant (laughs) Catherine Hannaway, comma, who who used to be these these things. Yeah. Um I'm sure you have no preference at this point. Now, just so Actually I do have a preference. Oh, yeah. what is I, your preference? I, I, I think
1: that this is gonna be a real law and order election. Okay. And so I think the credential that's most relevant is that I was the chief federal prosecutor for half the state. Okay. And it is the most recent public office that I've had. So I like former U.S.
0: attorney. Oh okay. I, that's I, good to know. It is good to know because that has been something that's been perplexing. So the reason we're having you on again, it's been almost I don't know, a About year. A year and a half. A year plus since we've had you on. A lot of things have changed in the gubernatorial landscape since we had you on the first time. And your
2: other three rivals have all been on within the last few months. Uh,
0: Yes, and you can check that out on (laughs) stlpublicradio.org. I I just want to start off with a very basic question. When we had you on the first time, it looked like you were going on a one-on-one race with then Auditor Tom Schweik. You're now engaged in a four-person race. I mean... Where do you see yourself now that the race has changed so dramatically since you entered in 2014? And how
2: has that affected your campaign? How you how you approach it?
0: Well, first first of all, the
1: thing that um, moved me to enter the governor's race hasn't changed. I'm very concerned about the future of the state. I'm very concerned with how the state has performed for the last decade. And so when I think about that, I mean, nothing is more important to me than my family. Um, our daughter's now a senior in high school. We have a seventh grade son. I watch my daughter and all her friends thinking about the future, and a lot of them are not thinking they're going to find jobs in Missouri. And so nothing about what's happening in terms of our state creating jobs has changed since I was last on. We're not creating enough jobs here in Missouri, not creating enough quality jobs. And so that aspect, my, my reason for running, has not changed in the least. Sort of the nuts and bolts of the campaign, of course, it changes when you have three different opponents, one of whom, the lieutenant governor, has a lot of name identification. The other two are, by and large, um, unknown in the state. And so our resolution has been to really make this an issues campaign, and there are significant issues. In addition to job loss, the murder rate in St. Louis is up 18%. The murder rate in Kansas City is up 40 percent. We saw what happened in Ferguson, what's happened at the University of Missouri. I think that law and order issues and people sense of personal security are very much going to be at the at the core of this race, and we find our campaign talking maybe a lot more about those issues than we were a year and a half ago.
0: I do want to talk about the lieutenant governor's entry into the race, because at the time that we were talking to you last, I think it was assumed that he was either not going to run for re-election or run for yet another term. But now he's in, and as you kind of alluded to, he has Pretty significant name identification, and he's won statewide three times.
2: And and the other factor is, well, he is from, at least originally, from southeast Missouri, and the, all the rest of, all three of you have bases in St. Louis. I mean, you when you were House Speaker, you were in St. Louis County. So, and Greitens and Bruner are both based in the St. Louis area. So, the fact that there's three of you from St. Louis area, one from outstate, allegedly, although, <laughs> although Kinder admits he spends a lot of time in St. Louis, yep. just kind of how that affects affects. Things. Yeah, and the reason
0: I'm bringing this up is I'm wondering if you two are basically occupying similar campaign archetypes as former or current elected officials that are running, and that may be hurtful to your campaign since he's currently in office, he has name recognition, and he's won three elections before.
1: Well, there was a whole lot in that question, yes. yeah, so let yeah. me uh, maybe okay. start with Um, the fact that I do think this is an election where people are looking at the government and saying it's fundamentally broken, whether they are Republicans or Democrats. I think that's where all the energy behind Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders is coming from. And they do not believe that the people who've made a career out of public service have either the right ideas or the Right resolve to fix it. And so I do think a significant difference between the lieutenant governor and myself is that he has held office continuously since 1992, either yes. in the state senate or as lieutenant governor. I'm 52. Out of that entire lifespan, I've only held elected office for six years. And quite frankly, I wasn't sure I'd ever run for office again. It's been 12 years since I've run for anything. But it was this sense that government is fundamentally broken and that it's going to take somebody who maybe isn't there day-to-day today to fix it. But I also think you have to have some experience to fix it. In terms of the name identification, I mean, who had more name identification in the presidential primaries than Jeb Bush, and he's not even running anymore? So I'm not sure it's necessarily a great advantage this time around. With respect to the urban versus rural, Look, I think the reason that outstate voters are gravitate towards someone who is from outstate is because they share their values. It isn't that they just care passionately about specifically where someone lives. Well, my values were formed in rural Nebraska and Iowa. Uh, I'm a Republican because I believe so fundamentally in freedom and it was formed from growing up in very small places where people had to rely on themselves. And if they didn't have the freedom to make their own way, perhaps they wouldn't make it. I think that that's why we've actually been the only campaign so far to announce an ag coalition. Mm -hmm. Um, We're the only campaign with volunteers in all 114 Missouri counties. And so I think the fact that I share the values a lot of the, of those rural voters is really coming through on the campaign trail.
2: Now, as, as I mentioned before, we went on the air. Another issue has been uh, the f- campaign finance for all four candidates for different reasons. In your case, what uh, some have been looking at is the fact that early on, you got a large donation. You've gotten some since then related from Rexingfeld or from groups aligned with him. And- since then, there have been debates about how much money you've been able to raise beyond that. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your, your fundraising and what you see as the strengths of, or explanations on how it's affected things.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk a little bit about this. We have more donors, more individual donors in Missouri than any of the other campaigns. We have uh, raised more money than Peter Kinder or John Bruner In Missouri, even when you take the Rex Singfeld and related groups contribution out completely. In fact, we've raised twice as much money as Peter Kinder, even when you take the Rex Singfeld and related groups contribution out of our fundraising. And so we're doing phenomenally well in terms of fundraising. The uh, momentum seems to be building every day. We have donors for something like 57 Missouri counties, so it's a very broad base of support. Um, It's going to be a very expensive campaign. The Democrat Chris Coster has raised far more money than any individual Republican, and so um, we're going to continue to push very hard to raise all the resources that we can.
2: Now, does the fact that Greitens has raised the most money so far among the Republicans. Has that, how do you approach that? Do you think that's going to be a factor? Do you think too much of that is outstate? Or, I mean, does it, when you're looking at how you're going to be spending your money, when you know that you may very well be outspent by one of your GOP rivals?
1: Well, uh, certainly you always want to raise as much money as you possibly can to deliver your message. And my message is going to be that I have the right blend of experience to keep Missouri safe and strong. I do think the fact that Eric Greitens has raised a majority of his money, something like 65% from outside Missouri, uh, will make it more difficult for him to prevail in a primary. I think it's interesting that there's been so much scrutiny of my $1 million donor and very little of the fact that Eric Greitens has gotten a million dollar contribution from somebody in California. What is this Californian's interest in Missouri? But also, primary voters are well-informed voters. They are not as reliant on the 30-second television ad as general election voters. Most of them will see us at some point out on the campaign trail. We've had eight forums now. Um, So I think money is a little less significant in the primary context.
0: Yeah, not to get too in the weeds here, but I know – I know that there has been a lot of attention and scrutiny on the fact that Rex Singfeld has given you a lot of money, but he's given Chris Coster a lot of money over eight years, too. And I just have to wonder how effective it's going to be for the Democratic side to, let's say you're the nominee, to attack you because you've taken a lot of money from Singfeld when Coster's taken a lot of money, too, and holds a lot of views that Singfeld has as, as well. I've I, I brought that up a lot, but I think that that's a practical reality of this entire situation I think it's an
1: excellent point Jason
0: I don't think I can add to it no I so
2: now if now we don't know if Coster will be the nominee could be Leonard Steinman <laughs> could be, could be somebody else who
1: I'm not a betting person but, uh, so, but <laughs> I might be willing to if make you're a the
2: GOP nominee and you're running against Coster, and both of you are prosecutors how do you I mean is there anything in general you want to say about that without belying any campaign secrets
1: well First of all, I think it's important that we do nominate a prosecutor to stand toe-to-toe with him. If you look at Chris's last two campaigns, his slogan has been, I'm all prosecutor and no politics, and it's been very effective. He's won decisively in those races. So if this is indeed going to be a law and order election, we nominate someone who cannot credibly— address his record on those issues. I think he's been extremely political in the way he's handled the Attorney General's office. Um, Even the New York Times has been critical of the way he's put politics ahead of his duties. So in order, though, to be to have a credible response to him and to make a credible assessment of his record and deliver that to voters, I, I think we've got to nominate someone who will match him on those issues.
0: Now, I do want to touch on one other thing before we move into issues, and the fact that the reason it is a four-person race is because the person that conceivably you were going to run against, Tom Schweik, killed himself, committed suicide, and you became ensnared in that entire situation not directly but for better or for worse you did.
2: There was a lot of accusations going on. I mean the and there was party a, chairman got stuck into it. And I mean so this was not just you.
0: There was an ad that was not run by your campaign but was run by I guess your I guess I don't know if he's still your consultant or was or was Roe. your consultant Jeff Rowe that you know got a lot of criticism. So I want to just ask you since this didn't happen when you were on the show last time has the fallout from Schweik's death negatively impacted your campaign? And how do you kind of move forward from some of the controversies that ensnared your the campaign from it?
1: To be perfectly honest, I don't think about that very sad event in campaign terms. Um, this was a tragedy for his family. It was a tragedy for the state. Tom Schweik was a superb auditor and public servant and we've lost his voice. I still pray regularly for his family. I I do not think about that event in terms of campaign tactics.
0: Either do I. I, It's been about a year, and I'm still saddened by the fact that he's not here. And... um, Yeah, I think we'll just leave it at that. But I did have to ask that question because it has been brought up Well, and it kind
2: of leads into some of the issues that we were talking about uh, in general. And I, I too, also think a lot about it. I had just seen him a couple days before. so.
0: So, But we do want to transition into the issues a little bit. Um, One of the things that you're kind of embarking on now is the Safe and Strong tour. Am I getting that correctly? Perfectly. I I read your email. And— Before I even ask you any questions, what is the Safe and Strong Tour? What what is kind of the the genesis of it all?
1: Well, it is to deliver very directly our message about where we think Missouri needs to go. And we think that Missouri needs to go to a stronger future economically, more jobs, and a safer future for the people who live here. And we don't want to just deliver that message through television and radio ads or even social media. We want to get out into communities so we're, we have pledged to go to all 114 Missouri counties. We've been to well over 70 already. So this tour will be in furtherance of the effort to visit every county and have conversations face-to-face with people. Um, as I said before, I think primary voters have a different level of access and ability to assess candidates. I want to make sure that pretty much anyone who has a question and and is trying to make up their mind how to vote at least has one chance for me to be near their community, in their community, and have a conversation with me.
0: Now, I think one of the big underlying issues in this campaign is going to be leadership, especially after the current governor, Jane Nixon, was engulfed in the Ferguson unrest and was heavily criticized for how he handled it. We've had other people on this show basically criticize him from both parties. I'm going to take a wild guess that you weren't super thrilled with how he handled that situation. And if if so, kind of tell me what you feel he did wrong and what you would have done differently.
1: Well, so he did everything wrong. First of all, he was – even before it happened, I don't think that he had the depth of relationships he should have had with leadership in the community, or with leadership in law enforcement. Then he was slow to get to the scene, and then among the first things he said was that the law enforcement officials should be indicted as soon as possible. Well, I think that comment alone energized outsiders to come to this community and and advance their protests, made it a national flashpoint, but then he calls the curfew for midnight. Midnight why not when the sun goes down? Um, there's so many bad things that happen after darkness comes in. Uh, he, he created a sense of um, urgency, of tragedy, a sense of panic by calling out the National Guard, but then he didn't deploy the National Guard to protect facilities. And candidly, he just did not stand up for law enforcement, even when The Obama Justice Department said there was not an excessive use of force. I know that came sometime later. But at every turn, he seemed, frankly, not to know which direction to go. He kept sending contradictory messages. He didn't lead. You have to lead from the front. So I would have set a reasonable curfew. I would have kept command and control local. I would have not and and, and not by that do I mean Ferguson? I mean in St. Louis County. I would have used the highway patrol to augment it. I would have been in that community having conversations.
2: Now, how do you rate the performance of County um, Prosecutor Bob McCullough, a Democrat who came under fire somewhat from the governor, but from a number of other Democrats? I know you've dealt with him a lot when you were U.S. Attorney. Any thoughts on... um, that because that has kind of colored some of the things.
1: I thought Bob McCullough did a courageous job. I, the The easier thing would have been to say, here, Attorney General, you take this case. I don't want to take the heat. He took it to the grand jury. He, he kept that case in the grand jury a long time and put a great deal of evidence before them. There can be some discussion about the quality of all of that evidence. And then for him to come out and make a very public statement in prime time so that everyone could hear directly from him. I, I think he truly led, and if you look back at the relationship that Bob and I have had over the years, um, you know, it, it's been collegial, but we're not particularly close.
2: Now, um, also related to that, I know the, the whole Ferguson unrest has kind of fed into uh, the, your, the part of your tour that deals with safety, you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know you're you're broadening it beyond Ferguson, but Ferguson's a major factor
1: in that. Well, but it is it's it's much broader than Ferguson. So the murder rate being up 18 percent in St. Louis, 40 percent in Kansas City, violent crime in Greene County is up 15 percent. Um, I think that part of that is attributable to the Ferguson effect that the director of the FBI has talked about nationwide but I think it is also related to a sense that the leadership of this state has not been sufficiently supportive of law enforcement. And so um, that's why we're touring around the state and talking about the fact that we have got to address public safety. If, if the government can't provide for public safety, it, I mean, there's no more fundamental role.
0: There's no more fundamental sense that our, our state government is broken. Well, I want to ask this question because I've now heard basically all the gubernatorial candidates talk about Ferguson. They kind of talk about it in the sense of what went wrong and kind of the after effect of that. But I haven't heard much specifics about one of the big reasons why a lot of people were out there protesting. And that is there's a feeling within the African-American community in St. Louis and maybe other parts of the state that they don't have a symbiotic or good relationship with law enforcement and that there needs to be concrete policy changes as well as social interactions to change that. I'd like to hear what you think of that and what you would do as governor to play a bigger leadership role in potentially bridging some of those divides. Absolutely. So
1: I think one of the things that you have to do is be present and and be in communication. And I think if you look at my track record when I was Speaker of the House, there were some very substantial steps that I took. I was the first speaker to recognize Martin Luther King Day and to recess the General Assembly while it was going on. Um, We had just become the majority party for the first time in 48 years. But there was no Republican from the city of St. Louis or the urban core of Kansas City. So I created an urban affairs committee and put a a Democrat as chairman, which is unheard of for the majority party to give up that slot. But going forward, I think one of the things that has, I, I think the Max Creek law change was good. I do think that we have far too many people being stopped and ticketed and these small municipalities raising money. But a more fundamental issue is half the murders in the city of St. Louis don't get solved. It's approximately that in Kansas City, too. And so if you are living in some of these neighborhoods where violence is, an, is a very regular occurrence, and you start to have this sense that law enforcement is there to um, get you, but not necessarily there to protect you. Um, it, it really erodes the relationship, and so I think we absolutely have to work on this issue of solving these, these murders, putting resources, and there are technological resources. It isn't just police officers on the street. There's cameras. There's drones, which I know won't be exceedingly popular. Um, there's intelligence gathering all those things. And as I think as the communities can start to view law enforcement as there for them and not just there against them, you transform that balance of trust. What do you think about body cameras? I support body cameras.
0: Now, I I want to play this clip now from Ferguson Commission co-chairman Starsky Wilson, because as I'm sure you know, the governor put together a commission that put forth, I think, 200 recommendations across a whole strata of different policy, but primarily law enforcement. And this is what he had to say after the final meeting of that commission.
2: We got people running for elective office right now. They're asking for votes. We have a people's agenda. We have the people's report. And all of those folks should be assessed versus what the people have said. That's the next year for our region. That's the next year For this area that'll be critical in an electoral campaign for statewide folks and maybe even some national folks so we've got to make sure we know our agenda well enough to ask those people where they stand
0: now the reason i'm bringing that up is lieutenant governor peter kinder has been very critical of the ferguson commission since its inception he basically said that the report could just gather dust on a shelf and won't actually accomplish much, but many people within the St. Louis community feel like it's an important document that candidates for office like yourself need to pay more than just lip service to. So what's kind of your sense of how much focus you're going to give to that document if you become governor, because there's a lot of different policy recommendations in there that are going to take longer than just when Jay Nixon's in office and whoever's governor is going to have to deal with some of these things. So what's your take on that?
1: Well, there's no question about it that there are a lot of policy recommendations in there. I think more than 180. I have spent substantial time going through the report. I have talked to some of the commission members. Um, I've in particular, focused as a former prosecutor on the the recommendations with respect to law enforcement. I have very serious concerns about how we find the money to implement uh, many of the proposals that are contained in the report. I disagree with some of the expanded social services proposed by the report. Look, we've tried many of those social services solutions in those neighborhoods for decades now. The war on poverty has been the uh, greatest losing war of the 20th and 21st century. I mean, poverty has actually for the most part, either stagnated or increased. And so I don't think just repeating those same kinds of social welfare programs over and over again is going to change the dynamic. But I do think that there are some other recommendations, particularly with respect to law enforcement, that are, are worth looking at. I wish that the commission had been a little bit more focused on how do you pay for it and how do you narrow it down to Uh, a a smaller set of recommendations that you can really build some consensus and energy around. Right now, Kansas City has their big five, the big five things that they want to get done. And the community is really all behind it. It's hard to have the big 180 plus.
0: (laughs) That's definitely true. Now, before we move on to another topic, I noticed that in a previous answer you gave, you talked a lot about the murder rate here and in Kansas City and in Springfield. I'm just curious, what role would the governor have in solving that given that typically that's been the purview of a local prosecutor or, or a police department. Can you just explain where the nexus is between Well you appoint
1: the, 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 the director of the public uh, department of public safety, you appoint the head of the highway patrol, you decide what how much funding to write into your budget for public safety and the highway patrol. Uh, you work in close conjunction, with the mayor and your big urban police department chiefs to see which public resor- public safety resources are going to get directed where. So I think there's lots and lots of opportunities for a governor to lead on these issues.
0: All right, well, we'll move on to the University of Missouri and the turmoil there. We could probably spend a whole show talking about this exact topic. I was in Jefferson City last week, and there was a hearing where the leaders of the UM system, University of Missouri-Columbia, and the board of curators were basically just grilled for a couple of hours by a bipartisan group of legislators. And for our listeners who haven't been paying much attention, there's been a host of problems at the University of Missouri, whether it be protests over a racial divide there, um, the saga of Melissa Click, the communications director that called for some muscle to get somebody off of a public space, their nexus with Planned Parenthood, athletic issues, the list goes on and on and on. And I know that it's become a big issue in the legislature and in the gubernatorial race. I'm just curious, beyond just your take on this whole situation, what role would you play to change some of these situations for the better, given that the governor's control over the university is somewhat indirect? They appoint curators. They obviously fund with their budget. But what would you want to do to change the situation there?
1: Well, it's pretty clear to me that at an institution of higher education, which is what we're talking about, that there are some essential functions. Teachers need to teach. Students need to be free to go to class and express their First Amendment rights. And scholarship athletes should play. And if those fundamental functions aren't happening, then the governing board, which is the board of curators, should do something about it. And in this instance, I think the board of curators really failed to do enough about it. And so had I been governor at the time, I would have sought the resignation of some of those members of the board of curators. But what comes before that is appointing people who truly represent the greatness of the state to that board. And right now there seems to be a a sense on the part of this governor that greatness only lies in lawyers somehow. I mean, the, the Board of Curators is dominated by lawyers. We need doctors. We need small business owners. We need community leaders. We need a geographic diversity, which is somewhat mandated by the Constitution. But even within congressional districts, it seems like they sort of gravitate to sort of the urban centers. We need to make sure that rural Missouri is well represented because there are a lot of kids from rural Missouri who end up at the University of Missouri. It's
0: funny that you mentioned that because one observation that I had was before he resigned from the board of curators, I think that the only non-lawyer was David Stewart. Did I pronounce his name correctly? Yes. He's the, I think, head of worldwide technology, which he was by far the most successful person on that board. He's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He's a great success story. But he was also the only non-lawyer. Everybody right. else was a lawyer, and I found that kind of interesting. But he stepped off of the board, I assume, because he's busy running a multinational business and he doesn't want to deal with this type of situation. So it kind of goes to the question, like, how do you find people from this cross-section and deal with some very real challenges when they're doing other things that may take up their time?
1: I think it's one of the most underestimated challenges that any governor faces here in Missouri because you literally have to make thousands of appointments and for the most part you have to go out and recruit talented people to leave their otherwise productive lives, come to Jeff City or Columbia or someplace else and provide service to the state, whether it's transportation commissioners, higher ed commissioners, the Coordinating Board of Higher Education. There are thousands of appointments to be made, which I do think is one of the reasons it's important that whoever we elect as the next governor does have enough experience and a broad enough statewide network to be able to go out and find really great people who are willing to, frankly, provide public service and make a sacrifice to help lead this state.
0: Now, I want to play a clip now from State Representative Courtney Curtis. He's a Democrat from Ferguson. He was at the University of Missouri-Columbia, I think around the same time I was. So to provide the context for what I'm about to say, when I was at the University of Missouri in 2002 to 2006, there was a protest over race there because somebody wrote this very bigoted and stupid column in the newspaper that made a lot of African-Americans uncomfortable. And the reason I bring that up is this entire protest that occurred last year was a long time coming. There have been incidents about race relations at the University of Missouri-Columbia for years. And this was the point that Representative Curtis brought up in the committee hearing.
1: These issues uh, took place 11
0: years ago when I was a student on campus, uh, 21 years ago when Senator Curls was a student on campus, Uh, so it's something that we've never really addressed, uh, and surely when we're losing money and whatnot, uh, that necessitates us actually needing to do something. So as governor, if you are governor, um, given that the legislative and executive branch has, again, some important oversight functions with funding and appointments, but not direct day-to-day oversight, how would you make sure that administrators that are running the University of Missouri-Columbia do make the situation better for African-Americans? Because that was the reason people were protesting last year. It's a protest that has come a long time coming. What sort of pressure do you think you could exert to make sure the environment changes?
1: Well, I think one of the most important things is to make sure that there is a a, a fact-finding mission to find out precisely what was happening and find out precisely what the which allegations are true. And look in any large institution, you are gonna have rogue bad actors. But I have yet to see any evidence of any kind of a systemic discrimination, whether it's with respect to admissions or hiring or promotion. Those are the kinds of things that as governor you have the ability to affect. You cannot prevent one dra- drunk kid from saying radically stupid, bigoted things. You just can't do it as a governor.
0: Yeah, but you would probably expect the administrator, administration at the university to be able to deal with those type of situations. To, s- way, to right?
1: sanction that, in, that individual student. Yes, that's But what I that mean. is far different than having – systemic problems that can be changed by the administrator. Yeah, and I think they did. The one student they did find, they sanctioned. I think they expelled him immediately. That would be my guess, too.
2: So what do you think? I mean, if you'd been governor when all this had happened, um, what would you have done, aside from you just talked about the curators, but just dealing with the climate on campus and the protests they had, um, is there anything quickly that you would have done to try to stem things or just just your thoughts?
1: Well, I think you have to go there. Um, and, and, and if Do you think you, the governor made a
2: mistake in not I,
1: I think he made a mistake in not going there and having a discussion with the people who had concerns. Look, talking is never a bad thing. And um, I think it would have taken a lot of steam out of the protests had they had an opportunity to voice their opinions to decision makers. I think that that's part of the reason they stopped the president's car in the homecoming parade, as they felt like they hadn't had an opportunity to voice their concerns. I think that as a leader, it's incumbent upon you to at least have those discussions.
0: Now, I want to transition into something a, a little more recent, and this is a statement that you put out last week after Representative Don Gosen stepped down. At the time, he didn't specify exactly what his personal reasons were. It then was revealed by Tony Messenger that he was engaged in a very graphic and, at times, semi-public extramarital affair. You said in a statement, I am appalled by the hard partying sex drugs and rock and roll culture that some legislators seem to think is appropriate in Jefferson City. Bad apples are the exception to the rule, but are rotting the barrel in Jefferson City. So I want to ask if you were governor, what sort of leadership or tone change do you think that you could provide to stop people from doing what Representative Gosen did, or what House Speaker John Deal did, or what Senator Paul Lavota did, or any other legislator that we could talk about over the last you know, few years that have engaged in this sort of nonsense, essentially?
1: Well, I would do what I did when I became Speaker, which is not ignore problems, which is structure the institution so that you... Um, don't give people quite as much time to be up to these shenanigans, but also advocate strongly to wring some of the opportunities for sort of uh, croning capitalism, um, feathering one's own nest uh, out of the system. So I think we have to close the revolving door of legislators moving to be lobbyists. We need to ban lobbyist gifts. We need to have truth in campaign financing, but it's a cultural change as well. You can't, even if, I mean, I, it is already against the law to assault a woman or to sexually harass an intern. I mean, writing more on, into the laws isn't going to change that. It requires a cultural change. When I was Speaker, we had a cultural change. This Post-Dispatch even ran an article saying, at the end of my first year as Speaker, under my leadership, that praying had replaced partying in the state capitol. Now,
2: when you look com- compare your tenure as Speaker with what's been happening, the, what's been public, the last year or two, are there certain things that you were like, man, that didn't happen back then and now they're happening all the time? Was there things that happened now that weren't happening then or was just a matter of you putting a lid on it?
1: Oh, I think that there's been indiscretions in the Capitol for a very long time. I think social media has brought more of them to light, but what I tried to do both when I was minority leader and when I was speaker was not ignore the smoke and have conversations with members about really um, what the expectations of their constituents were. Look, holding elected offices, holding a job, you're hired to do a job, and not one voter is hiring a legislator to go down there and chase an intern party hard with lobbyists, and set up their next job. Not one voter. There's no voter that is for that. And so that's what I – the culture I tried to create is, look, remember, we are here to do a job.
0: Do you think it's the culture and and the fact that the way Jefferson City is set up basically makes ordinarily good people do bad things? Are, are voters basically electing people to office with – pretty substantial character flaws to begin with, and they're essentially taking advantage. I ask this because I have a hard time believing that someone goes to Jefferson City, is surrounded by all of these things, and then just is transformed into somebody who starts sexually harassing people. My guess is if they start doing that, they already had pre-existing character flaws to begin with, and just the way the electoral process is set up where you're trying to put your best face forward and you're not like... Detailing all of your character flaws, there's really just no way for voters to know about some of these pre-existing skeletons in the closet. As a you know, as a former speaker, I'd be interested in your take on that.
1: Well, that that is a deep psychological research project. Um, what I will say is, you're probably right that there are pre-existing conditions that there's a certain amount of sort of ego and hu- hubris that get somebody to sign up to run for office. But I also think that you can do things to control the climate. The night before filing and after our forum in Jeff City, I actually went and wandered around the Capitol at about 10 o'clock at night. I can tell you that when I was a legislator, that building would have been full. There's no one there. Well, it was full with people working, either in committee hearings or in session. But now I understand it is rare for anyone but the budget committee to work after 6 o'clock at night. Look, let's make let's make that place one that works really hard when they're there, and then go home. So maybe you only need to be in session two days a week, yeah, and, I, and maybe the budget only needs to fund per diem. And, and for I realize, two days and I week. realize
0: that question is kind of a deeper philosophical question, but I think it hits at a question that if people are already willing to cross boundaries before they get into office, are passing new laws really going to change anything? And I think you kind of dealt with that in your answer.
2: Now I'm wondering if you think. Um, the parties have failed or not. When you managed to uh, amass the majority, the Republican majority in the House, and that's what made you speaker. I mean, you had gotten credit and co- and criticism for the fact that you were traveling the state trying to line up Republican candidates everywhere, because at that point the Democrats were still in charge. So you oversaw the massive change from Democratic control to Republican control, and it's still under Republican control, the House and will likely be that way for a long time. When you were going around, did you have to vet some of the candidates? I mean, do you feel that the parties aren't paying enough attention to who they're recruiting? They're just trying to get bodies. I'm just interested in your take on that because you had gotten a lot of attention for the amount of work you spent in drafting um, Republicans to run.
1: Well, I will say that I think it is very different how the system works today. I think consultants are very much more involved in both candidate recruitment and running these campaigns. Um, When we took a majority in the House, the House Republican Campaign Committee had no employees. Every single penny that we spent, we um, spent on advertising for candidates. And so I had a personal relationship with them. I was seeing the ads. I was working with the candidates. I think that there is more distance. That's the ancient past. But how it's important for the future is I think that the governor is, the current governor is so far away from being involved day to day with work in working with the legislature and crafting how things come out. How many he's been vetoed a record number of times, and. At the end of session, he'll say, well, I don't like these aspects of this bill. Well, the governor, if he has concerns about a bill but supports the principle, he or hopefully she will be down in the legislature helping on the front end to craft solutions to our most difficult problems, not waiting till the end and just stamping veto on it.
0: My only other question is, are you excited to be in a gubernatorial debate if you win the nomination with Leonard Steinman?
1: I'm very excited. <laughs> uh, although that would presume that he will win his primary, correct? That's
0: that was the joke I was trying to make. It was
1: a good joke. It was. I do like the paint job on his buses. That is impressive. I, yeah. So
2: our just so our listeners know, Leonard Steinman is one of the lesser known candidates. He's a perennial from Jefferson City, who filed for governor on the Democratic side, has a hand painted bus, and was in filing with uh, on Tuesday with a really long beard. And a Mizzou band cap.
0: And I'm sure the Mizzou folks were, were thrilled when Joe uh, the photo was in Joe's story. Yeah, you
2: can just check out the photo <laughs> on our website.
0: Well, thank you again for coming on our show. We really appreciate it, as always. And for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow Joe on Twitter at...
2: Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. I'm
0: on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And we can follow you on Twitter at... Hannaway4Gov. And thank you so much for having me on again. I really appreciate it. And we appreciate your time. Until next week, so long.